Hey everyone, my name is Fezan Chalanya. I am a senior product manager at LinkedIn. And my favorite coffee, actually I am trying to decaffeinate myself. So I'm actually trying to not consume coffee right now. So my favorite coffee right now is water, which is, but that's it is. Welcome back to another MLOps Community Podcast. I am your host, Dimitri Ose, and today we're talking with Faisan. Wow, I love this conversation because it is not every day that I get to talk to product people, but when I do, you know, I go wild. I'm one of those guys that has been talking to engineers for the last three years and seeing the odd product person come through every once in a while, just, it, it lights me up. I love it. And Today was no different because today we dove into how to think about building AI products. You've heard us talk about it before with other product managers. And this time, it was so nice to hear how he thought about generative AI as a tool in the toolkit, not some hammer and go around looking for a nail, which is common sense by this point, but I know I've seen the products out there, especially products and features being incorporated into products that look like they're just trying to bolt on some Gen AI or AI capabilities because they have to or they're looking to make their investors happy. Now, he goes into the different ways that he has found gotchas while putting AI into the different products that he's been creating. We didn't get to dive in too much to what he's doing at LinkedIn because for that, we would need some PR permissions and we didn't get it. So we brushed over that whole thing. So if you're looking for his full-on experience at LinkedIn and what he's doing with AI there, that will be for a whole nother episode where we get the permission. For this one, however, we talked about troubleshooting. We talked about incorporating your AI features. We also talked about how he as a product manager speaks with and dives into the technical aspects of the platform team. So hope you like it. This is, of course, the MLOps Community Podcast, and we'd love it when you share this with one other person that you think will find it interesting. All right, let's get into it. I got to start with this, dude. You are probably the first person to come here and have a past life as an actor. Tell us <laughs> about that, man. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this was when I was five, actually. So Child uh, star. <laughs> yeah, so, so I was five. Uh, I think I was out for some summer activity somewhere, and there was this one shoot happening for some commercial and then I was just standing there I was looking at it and my dad ended up speaking with someone and they were like hey your kid do you want to get and try out audition for things and my dad was like might as well it's a good learning experience and it started with that and like cut to I have a whole portfolio and I'm doing auditions and I ended up acting in some Bollywood movies. There was a wow. prime time sitcom and we did like 350 episodes of it. And at the wise and weathered age of 14, and I was like, okay, I am bored of this now. And they wanted me to, you had to retire. Contract. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it was either school or acting. So I was like, okay, no, I'll just stick with school. You said, I see a big future in machine learning. I'm going to chase that dream. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Oh, dude, that is so wild. So anything that I may have seen your Bollywood days? I don't know how many Bollywood movies you've seen, but then the movies that I've done are with one of the top production houses. So they're like, out no. there, they're popular. I don't actively advertise the actual movie names, <laughs> not putting it out on the internet. We got to go find your IMDb page. All right, we'll post that in the show notes in case anyone wants to check it out. Uh, That is classic, dude. That is so good. Were you doing the whole dancing and everything? The whole nine yards? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love dancing. I still dance. 
Oh man, that is awesome. Yeah. All right, that's, so that's my outlet when, when my model's not working. I'm like, let me just <laughs> go ahead and dance somewhere. When we do the in-person MLOps community conference, we may have to have you be one of the intermissions. You're you. We can me and you both. I'll do it with you. We'll create then, a dance routine, and that's we where will the make fun that. Is. Yes, that would absolutely. be awesome. Let's do that. <laughs> All right. So we didn't come here only to talk about Bollywood. I know that that was nope. a bit of a tangent start. This isn't a retired Bollywood, where are they now, VH1 behind the music type thing. This is a talk about you being a product owner and getting into the wonderful world of LLMs. And I especially want to talk about the evolution that you've seen because you've been in the game for eight plus years. So before you were <laughs> what? people probably called ML product leader and now you're like an AI product leader you gotta hopefully you got a pay raise with the new title but the cool thing is I would love to just start and hear your story after the Bollywood phase then after school you obviously did well enough in school to get yourself a job you came to the U.S. at some point and you started working for Yahoo and what happened? Before Yahoo I was always involved in the actually even at Yahoo to some extent I was involved in the very technical aspects of machine learning I started out as a research analyst I ended up working with um, research labs I worked with some investment banks and their research departments and then I did grad school focused on machine learning took some grad PhD level courses that I didn't really bad at but then I joined Yahoo as a machine learning engineer and a few months into Yahoo, I realized there was this alternate role, which was a product manager, like a machine learning product manager. And they're like, hey, this person has to be technical for them to keep their job. But then they're also not very actively just working on at the lower level, like where they're actually executing and looking in GPU memory capacity and things like that. But they're still involved in machine learning and they're solving a lot of different kind of interesting problems. So at some point I made that decision like, hey, okay, both of these parts look very interesting. I cannot actually pursue both of them. I have to choose and I ended up choosing the product management part. But coming from a technical background and also being an MLPM, it, I've had to be extremely technical the whole time. So that's something that I really enjoy. And so yes, machine learning PM at Yahoo and then I ended up moving to LinkedIn and now I'm a PM over here. Awesome. Yeah. And I want to get into a little bit of what you're doing at LinkedIn. And if you are the one responsible for the, when I post on LinkedIn, the AI feature, but before we get into that, you mentioned something interesting there, which is how you have to be technical, but you're not at that lower level. What are the technical pieces that you feel like you definitely need to know about? The technical pieces that I, so generally when I'm trying to build, say, any kind of machine learning product, I have to understand how it's going to work under the hood. Otherwise, it's just going to be random ideas and my engineers will laugh me out of the room. So uh, when I'm trying to think of a user problem, I'm thinking of a user problem, I'm thinking of, okay, how can we solve this using machine learning? And then once I've started going down that path, I'm thinking, okay, what kind of data do we need? What kind of data do we actually have already? Can we leverage that? How can we leverage that? And what kind of experience is needed? With other PMs, I've seen sometimes there's a very clear cut handoff between the product idea and like how we end up building it. The working model that I have with my team is I start at the highest level and then I keep adding details and I keep adding details. And then there's a section where me and my tech leads, we are actively working on defining what the solution will be. And at one point I just hand it off to them. Okay. Now it's going to be much more about what the implementation should look like. And we don't need any more product decisions right now. So they do that. And if they have any product questions, they come back to me later. So does that mean that you're really intimate with the types of technology your teams are using? Are you building out diagrams and figuring out, okay, we're going to be pulling data from this database and then... Um, making sure that we have all this type of whatever, we're throwing it into a Kafka stream or we're getting it from a Kafka stream and then we're transforming it with Flink and that kind of thing? Or is it more just like, hey, this is our problem. I know that we have the data 
because I know from this other project that we created, we definitely are using some similar data. And I know that a similar project that we've created also had uh, success. So we can do this, like break it down. How does that look? And how do you also think about those things and think those things through and talk to your team about it? Yeah, it's more of the latter as much as I enjoy getting into the weeds of like which Kafka, Kafka stream it is coming from. I don't think um, that's the best use of my time. And that is why I have these brilliant engineers working with me. So what I do is I focus on the latter part, which is, okay, what kind of features do we have? How can we use these features? Sometimes the, the one step extra is I know what data we have available, what kind of experience that I'm trying to build. And then I have recommendations of like, hey, maybe I don't think we can build a classifier at this point. Maybe we just do this heuristic and then we collect training data and go from there. Or maybe we just start with some low form of clustering and maybe we just use these attributes of a user to create the MVP experience and then go from there. One thing just like came to me while I was talking about this, the reason why this is potentially useful as well, just simplifying the solution, even when like generally the solution is owned by the engineers, theoretically speaking, is because whenever we are building an AI product, it's, you cannot build the best model right away. You have to start small. Otherwise, it's just a lot of effort for confirming or even rejecting some hypothesis. So what we do is I try to simplify the MVP as much as possible, see if we are getting the right signal, see if we are accepting or rejecting the right kind of assumptions. And then once we have that, then we need a good machine learning model. And then I take my hands off like, hey, okay, person A, person B, just build me a nice thing. And then they own the whole thing and I don't have to know any details. So the interesting thing that you said there is, for me at least, you're trying to figure out at what basically scale you need to implement machine learning and how, if at all, machine learning or AI, in quotes, needs to be used because it feels like you're going for speed and you're trying to say, all right, for this feature, let's see if we can get something up. Let's see if we can get something going. And then you're looking at the metrics and you're looking at what is important when it comes to that feature. And if there are some significant changes, then you throw, you layer on ML on top. Are there times where you jump from nothing to whatever, the hardest thing that you could possibly implement because you know it's going to work or is it always a gradual implementation? Generally, I try to establish that I start with a casual implementation always because there are going to be assumptions. If I'm building something new, there are assumptions baked in. So generally, I try to do a very simple thing first and then build on top of that. But yes, there are going to be situations where we have done something similar in the past or we have valid data-driven proof that this absolutely works. Now, in that case, we can tune up the complexity. And then, then I work with my team to see uh, when can we ship something by, how complicated does it have to be, and work from there. How often do you actually ship something on time? Like, how often do you correctly analyze how long it's going to take you to build some kind of machine learning or AI feature? There's more often than not, actually. And I, I've been the engineer on the other side, and I know that's extremely difficult. But then the partners that I'm working with, they're absolutely brilliant. They're all obviously like something like some of things that throw us off. But most of the time, we are shipping on time. So that's well, count for something. Kudos to you guys. So there, there is something else. I mean, when you talk about building these features and, and scoping them out and thinking through them, you had mentioned to me before we hit record that you wanted to jump into a little bit of like what founders and builders should think about when they're bringing generative AI into their products. And I know that you have been really thinking deeply about this and I love the stuff that you share on LinkedIn and I love just like your mentality around it. So I want to hear what's your thesis or 
MO when it comes to building products with this new type of AI features in it, as opposed to what you saw before, where it was all, it was mainly ML. Okay, um, if I try talking about this, I could just keep speaking and you won't get a chance again. But uh, to to keep it extremely short, the answer is kind of kind counterintuitive to some people. Is hey, it's the same. There is no change. We have to think about generative AI as a tool and nothing more. See how this tool can be used in service of your users. So if I had to put it in one sentence, I would just say, hey, Gen AI is just a tool. You're still serving the users. Build what you can best to serve the users. Oh, I like that a lot. What are some key areas and like ways that you feel like we can incorporate generative AI into our products? In the, and again, this answer has changed every like one or two months in the past year. Every open AI update. Every open AI no. update or like every uh, open source model update even. When Llama 2 came out, everyone's like, okay, now I can actually use these services. But anyway, okay. So the first thing in the simplest version of things, and if someone's not trying to add too much complexity to their product, what they can do is use LLMs for creation of anything. And mostly like starting with text because that's easier. Do this when you want to create some human aspect or not make it very robot, not, not make your experience very robotic when you want to add that human touch, which ironically is AI. Uh, start with there and once you start adding more complexity to your product, you can start addressing more problems that need factual information. And again, anyone who's listening to this podcast knows about hallucination. So you have to actively fight against hallucination. Hallucination. So you start with experiences. The easiest experiences to build are the ones that don't care as much about hallucination. And then you keep, starting, keep adding complexity and then you can add retrieval augmented generation. Now, now you're basing your outputs and truth, so you can start working on those things. Again, I think this is a very technical explanation, but if you, if I had to think about, okay, what kind of experiences are the highest value? I think that depends from one company to other company, one product to other product. Assistants are not for everyone. I know it's very easy to build, but I feel like, again, this is a very personal opinion. I feel like a lot of people should not start building assistance. And Ooh, hot take. They, yes, hot take, actually. And <laughs> build experiences in your existing product and solve the hardest problem. <laughs> because the assistant product cycle requires you to, requires the customer, user, to talk. And it's a pull mechanism. And that's a lot of effort, talking to someone to get value. How about we cut through the chase and provide value using generative AI? Ooh, so talk to me a little bit more about this pull mechanism as opposed to a, a push mechanism, I guess. What would a push mechanism be? So push mechanism would be, uh, let me think about non-LinkedIn use cases. Yeah. <laughs> to not have to go through the PR people, exactly. Yeah. Something that potentially. Yeah. Okay. So let me let me just take a very simple example. This is a public product that's out there. This is the help me write section that you would see on Google. This is uh, Gmail. I think they're testing and it's in beta right now. But th there's still one level of interaction where they're saying, "Okay, if you want to write an email? Tell us what you write, want to write about, and they'll create an output for you." So. Yes, it feels like I am telling the model to what to write and then it's creating an output, but there's so much happening in the background and the, all of that complexity is removed from the user. They're trying to explicitly create an email. You can write something very simple in there and it will still create a good email from it. So there, there are meta prompts involved. They're probably looking at what your contact list is. They're looking at what the thread is, thread of the conversation is. And all of those things you don't have to worry about because it's already baked in that complexity is abstracted away from you. The, so building those experiences where you do the heavy lifting, the product does the heavy lifting and the user has to do minimal work 
that's where the most value is going to be. And the counter example to this would be, I take my problem to chat GPT and say, yeah. hey, write me an email. And now ChatGPT doesn't know what email, where are you, who are you writing to, what is the context, what yeah, do you what need. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like having to basically abstracting away all of the prompts and the context and the knowledge base that you need, right? Yeah. It's just, oh, it's going to seamlessly give you something. And I understand now why it's like that push example. It's going to push you the information that you're looking for as opposed to you having to like pull it out of it. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Yeah. And I think another one that is doing this well, now that you mention it, I can see Notion being one of those where when you're just clicking around, you don't have to explicitly add special prompts unless you want to. And to be honest, I tend to find that when I do try and throw in prompts for like, write me something, write me XYZ with whatever in Notion, I am, end up just getting frustrated. But when I have something there already and it's like, hey, clean this up or make this better, make this sound nicer, punch it up, then it works quite well. And, and that's just clicking a few buttons as opposed to adding some prompts. And so yeah. I, I can see that for sure. Also, um, this Notion experience and even the Google's Help Me Write experience, they meet you where you are right now. Yeah, hey, yeah. I am writing this email in this box and I can work with the AI over here rather than you going to a different window or a different assistant that's out there in the same window and then having a conversation over there and then porting it back, which is, again, yeah. a lot of work. Yeah, totally, totally. You did say something earlier around when the open source models come out and how you felt like people were excited about Llama 2 dropping and it's, oh, now I can use this. I imagine at an enterprise level, you're looking at things differently. We don't have to talk about that at all to not have to go through PR or whatever, but how did you see the difficulties in your own use cases or your friend's use cases of using things like ChatGPT or OpenAI and it being super expensive. And then also, same goes for like, I guess Anthropic is another one that can be really expensive. And we've talked at length on this podcast, just for a little bit of context, about how there's kind of two modalities of thinking, right? One is that I'm going to get something up and running as quickly as I can to have that value for the end user and then once it gets to a certain point that we can see this product feature is useful then we'll switch but until we get there we're not going to switch and potentially there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that we can tackle with the llms and if all we need to do is hook up to the OpenAI api then we're good and so they don't necessarily think about that the expense-wise. But then there's a different category or a different school of thought where it's, no, I don't want OpenAI to touch my data. And I don't, or maybe it's not even that. It's just like, yeah, that's really expensive and I can do it myself. Although I have thoughts on that that we can get into in a minute. But they prefer to use open source. And some people are just really interested in open source because it's open source. So talk to me about how you think through those things. Yeah, yeah. And actually, we'll come to the open source part in a minute. So let me just address the, how do we approach? How do I approach thinking about these solutions? I am very much in the first uh, cohort that you described. I think LMs are so useful to increase the go-to-market speed for anything that we are building. But having said that, it's... It's not going to scale to 100 million users. It's going to be extremely expensive. But we don't need it to scale to 100 million users uh-huh. because we, at most of the products, most of the products that we are going to build, we, when I say we, I mean like any PM, any company, and any product that we are going to build is going to have a very narrow use case. We don't need the internal model, the model behind it, to be able to answer law questions and medicine questions and something about LinkedIn and something about Google. So go to market, test this quickly, see what works, see what doesn't work, 
and then try to replace it with a narrower model, a smaller model, which I believe will, in a lot of cases, perform better than whatever LLM model you are using, because now it's pre-trained on something very specific. Yeah, 100%. It's funny because it's like you almost do full circle. You see if something works, and I can see that. You get the velocity really out the gates. You're like, does a feature with AI work? Yes, no, boom, we can test it. Okay, we're seeing some good signals. Now let's bring it back. Let's start to figure out how we can use this in-house. I mean, I do know there are other people that have come on here and said, yeah, you know what? Actually, we don't even care that we are spending this money with uh, OpenAI because it is making our product more attractive and then people will sign up for our product more so the ROI is there. And so figuring out that ROI is a little bit tricky. Some people have it very clear, others don't. Yeah, absolutely. And actually this is, again, like six to 10 months ago, I was doing this as an exercise for something that I wanted to build and even generally speaking. So I was thinking, okay, if I want to build a Gen AI solution and if I want to test it with 50,000 people and if I do it for 30 days, hypothetically speaking, and I do, so I did all of my, uh, I put all of my assumptions on a table, what kind of QPS would I be looking for? And then when I use the open AI public pricing to calculate how much it would cost to run this experience, I was like, wow, this is really cheap. No, because I was thinking about it from obviously an enterprise scale, but yeah. test something with 50,000 users and just do this uh, back of the envelope math this is really good. Otherwise, if I have to build my own ML solution, there's GPU cost, there's engineering time, there's so much infra that one would have to build. And then maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work exactly, and then we have to do something all over again. Yeah. So then when you were talking about open source, what is your thoughts on that, and how do you see that playing into it? With open source, there's a lot of I, I think OpenAI released its like new policies where they're saying if you're an enterprise customer, we won't use your data. I am not sure, so don't quote me on that. Yeah. But maybe there's data protection over there. But maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, we'll find out. But anyway, open source models are just like um, open by definition. So there is no transparency issue over there. People can host the whole model in-house. So for use cases that have stronger requirements, Maybe if it's related to investment banking or if it's maybe related to law or something else. Now you can know and explain what's going on. Well, you can completely explain, but you can control what sources are going into your model. So that's always good. And I think these models, open source models, are much smaller than a lot of other models that are out there, which makes it even more cheaper. You can continue using this large language model for your use case without it getting too expensive after, I don't know, 30 days. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. So you spoke about you playing around with the spreadsheet and trying to build out something on your own. When you are building a generative AI experience, what are some things that you're focusing on? Because maybe there's stuff around model selection, your prompt structure, your prompt evaluations iterating on prompts and so with your project how did you look at all that and how did you approach it from your product frame of mind yeah when, when you asked that question I, I saw so many flashbacks of working through uh models late nights this, yeah weekends all that good stuff yeah. a, lot of, a lot of interesting times a lot of interesting times but anyway yeah. so um again without getting into too many technical details and like what the engineering decisions were and whatnot. One thing, like I mentioned, my general stance is see what can get you a good go-to-market speed. Start with that. It's not going to be, even if someone's starting their new product, in, in actually in that environment, speed matters even more than other yeah. things. So look at what's the easiest to use and start with that. So that's from the model perspective. Again, it obviously has to solve for whatever your use case is. So that's that. The second part is the prompt, prompt selection. The one thing that I've been like preaching in close work is like whoever I uh, speak with 
uh, other colleagues, colleague, not 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 just colleagues, like people in the industry. Like, hey, the first time you hit a prompt about a product that you want to build, you'll see the output, and you're like, oh my god, this is brilliant! I've hit jackpot. But when you do this for ten thousand different experiences, um, so the exact same experience, but for ten thousand different people, ten thousand different users, you'll see all kinds of anomalies. And that is where prompt engineering and prompt iteration has to come in. And then you have to actively squash these bad experiences and make sure that you're building as consistent an experience as you can while still obviously providing great value to the end user. Mm -hmm. And is that the consensus? Is it mainly the prompt that you're focusing on more as opposed to catching it if it outputs something wrong? When uh, catching it, when it outputs something wrong, then you would need an external evaluator in, un- yeah. in that sense. So when you're trying to build real-time experiences, we can't do an external evaluation at that point or maybe like a near-line evaluation. So it has to be built into the system. I think the first line of defense is still to have a better prompt rather than you can always make like two GPT calls and have the second one verify the first one. <laughs> it's going to help. And it is one of the valid tech techniques that people use out there. But again, now your experience costs double what it was going to cost earlier. So there's a lot of value in prompt engineering. There's a lot of value in prompt iteration. So one should first spend time in making your prompt extremely robust. See what experience, how much of the mountain can you climb with just this one prompt. And then when you start hitting the limits of that prompt, then you can think about, okay, what do I still need? What? How do I make that happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea of what you were saying when you were, when you talk and you preach about the prompts and just getting anomalies and how basically every time you input the same thing, the output can be a little bit different. Like, how are some other ways? Is it just the prompts that you're looking at to help? build that in a better way or are there other things that you're doing like i know we've had people on here from different tooling companies or who have built open source tools like uh, i'm thinking about this guy maxime bushem shemi who is he created promptimize and i know there's a ton of tools in that space where it's just like helping you evaluate your prompts helping you save your prompts helping you do everything that you could ever want and imagine with your prompts to make sure that you're tweaking them and you're getting the most you can out of the prompts. And it feels like that's great. And then there's also a guy that we had on here just a a week or two ago who was CTO of Pito. And he was talking about how you want to just basically make the constraints as small as possible. So you're really trying to constrain the model and make sure that you give it a ton of context and then you constrain the output in the prompt. Did you come up with any other tricks or do you have any other secrets to lead us on to? Yeah, there's, I, I, I very much agree with the second person who mentioned like add as much context as possible and then constrain the output for whatever you want to get out of the model. So that's one thing what other things that we look at obviously temperature is one as i'm not all, all of the practitioners know okay if you want something much more consistent you can look at you can look at the temperature parameter but again that comes with its own pros and cons anyway yeah. that's that i love the part that you mentioned about tooling because as we keep doing this more and more tooling gets extremely important and that becomes a productivity bottleneck if you don't have good tooling so yeah. that's something that's going to be very useful, but I'm not recommending anything specific right now because again, these things change every month or every two months. When I started, which was uh, many, many months ago, there were no tools around. So we had to build our own thing and see how we can make it work. That's that now I think Microsoft has Microsoft guidance and there are so many great open source tools out there. And last week, I think or the week before that, I read a paper where they're like, AI can create better prompts. AI has like proven to create better prompts than humans. For a child. So maybe we automate 
this part out as well to some extent we still have to be involved but to some extent we automate that yeah yeah and really reminds me of this conversation that i had with and the name is failing me now but some stanford researcher and he was i think his name was kiran and he was talking about how his whole phd was on where to have a human in the loop so if we're going to be having a human in the loop in increasingly less places he wanted to make sure that we choose the right places to have them in the loop and so it feels like that is just more and more relevant as yeah. new product comes out or each new update comes out i love that i love that actually like after the podcast send me a link to whatever yeah. is research as i'd love to read it will do for sure so when you were building your tool we were talking about earlier how don't just go out and set out to build with gen ai just because but did you do that? Did you like not follow your own advice and do as I say, not as I do type thing and go and try and build something just to get your hands on Gen AI? Or was it that you saw a problem and you said, all right, I could solve it with XYZ, but I think the best and the fastest is going to be with AI. So there, there are a couple more extra data points for where, so I've been involved in Gen AI for a few years now. So fun fact, 2017, I was working on some research item and I was using GANs to oh. to generate things. The GAN word, I know, right? It's old now. Yeah, that went out of style quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was inputting text and outputting an image out of it. But then the only image I could generate was a 28 by 28 thumbnail, which was really small. Obviously, it takes a lot of GPU capacity to do anything. <laughs> so from that word, I knew about Genia already. And I think September, October of last year, I was like, hey, there are a lot of new papers coming out. And it seems like there's better solutions now and the technology is potentially commercially ready. So that I had that at the back of my mind. And at LinkedIn, I saw creators. Creators, among yeah. other things, now I'm working on content understanding as well. But anyway, in any kind of product, there are going to be some problems that were very difficult to solve. And I was like, hey, if I add Gen AI, I can actually tackle this problem now. Until now, I probably couldn't have. But now Gen AI has, or ChatGPT at the time, has made it accessible for me to tackle this problem. And that's how I was looking at it. Ah, so it was a bit of an unlock where you realized, yes. okay, now it's finally time to concoct my world domination plan that I've been waiting for. <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, we mentioned we were going to talk about what you're doing at LinkedIn. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm a bit of a creator on LinkedIn myself. Yes, absolutely. You're always so, first on my feed when you post something. Yeah. So basically, you work for me. And Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What is What are some cool things that you're doing at LinkedIn? Are, and are you the person that created the features so that I can just put a prompt into my post and then it will create some kind of AI generated post. Okay. So what do I do at LinkedIn? Um, I started a couple years ago. So back then it was more about personalization and what I can do to serve creators on the platform. Now, as time has evolved, evolved now I'm focusing on how can I use AI to serve creators on the platform. This can mean better distribution for them. This can mean getting smaller creators to grow, reach that audience, start that virtuous flywheel of engagement and make connections. So that's something that we actively work on. I'm also now working on content understanding. So seeing how we can interpret what a particular post is about, what a particular image video is about. And then you will start to serve better matching content to you when you log in on LinkedIn. And once you create something with LLMs in production, there's <laughs> someone else out there who's interested in LLMs and get your content to them. So yes. that's something that I actively work on. Sounds amazing. I want all of that. Get, get my stuff out there so I can start sponsoring my posts and make a living from it. Absolutely. Become a real on time. It, sir. On it. I have a meeting in 10 minutes with my eng manager. So I'll just ask her to just make everything happen today. <laughs> 
the thing that I also was interested in on like you as a product guy, and maybe this isn't necessarily at LinkedIn, but just like what you've seen, being able to go from what you were talking about before, where back in the day, you had to put a lot of work into a GAN and you had to use a lot of GPU resources just to get something that kind of worked, right? And now it feels like over a weekend, you could probably hack together an MVP and show value uh, for something. So it almost has this gigantic unlock for any product engineer out there because now there's no excuse as to why something isn't being created or at least an MVP isn't being tested. Have you found that to be true or am I just like making that up and creating my own theory and thesis in my head? No, it is 100% true, 100% true and it unlocks so many opportunities, so much speed. I think this is one of the best times to be an AI PM because generally as PMs, you want to test your ideas or you want to test your hypothesis, see what works, what doesn't. With AI solutions, it used to be extremely tough and difficult. And now you have this option where you can potentially even like test for a small period with uh, off-the-shelf solutions. And then later on, you can choose to build your own. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like you get this opportunity and you can say, oh, actually, if we wanted to do this, I could probably make that happen. And it's a few API calls, so let's just test it out. Let's see if you're getting those signals and how are you looking at signals in general? Like I know each use case is going to have its own distinct signals and distinct things. But when you're trying to figure out like, how to measure ROI on your different features. How do you think about that? And like walk me through your the way that you go about it. Yes. So the first I'll start with the general playbook. Again, a rough idea of a playbook that I would have anyone go through is first decide what problem are you solving? Is mm-hmm. it a problem worth solving? Do your users actually care about you solving that problem? So that's the primary, that's where um, call back to one of our earlier points where I'm like, hey, Gen AI is just a tool to solve problems for users. So see what kind of problem that you're trying to solve, start from there. And then you can set a time period, you can set how good your MVP is supposed to be and you can test it against what kind of metric you're trying to move versus how how many dollars it's going to cost you to build this experience. And then you can see in the long term, does this math work out? But the fun part is when you're thinking about Gen AI experiences, it's not all of this very obvious, very normal playbook things. You also th- have to think about, okay, now this is a new experience. This is a, not, not even just a new experience. It's a new interaction pattern. It's a new paradigm completely. So what are new things that I have to think about? And over there, I think trust is a very big part that we have to now actively think about and everyone should actively think about this because any of these LLM models, they're very confident. They, they, <laughs> they say something, but it doesn't always make sense. And when you want to serve your users, you you want to be right. So building a feedback mechanism and actively tracking that, seeing, first of all, do a lot of offline testing, obviously. I'm assuming that's done already. But when the product is online, have a feedback pipeline. This shows that to your users that you're willing to learn. You're you're trying to be fast. You're trying to push something. You're trying to create new experiences for them. But you're also willing to take feedback. And you'll see um, corner cases where things just blow up and you would have never thought of that corner case. And then keep track of what's not working and actively fix that. Because with a lot of these new experiences, it's you are creating a voice for your brand. Now, ChatGPT also has voice, so that's a different thing. But with Genia experiences, you're adding this human element. So you have to make sure that the bar is very high for trust. Because if it says something stupid, it's going to reflect badly on your product, on your company. So trust is the new element that I would supercharge for Genia experiences. And so you as a PM coming into the I guess you've been doing this for a while so potentially it's not exactly your specific case but 
I'm wondering if you've seen the other people go the other direction, whereas you're doing a lot of PM work and you're understanding the technical pieces and you're going deeper into the machine learning and the LLMs. And what I've seen from different PMs is there's been this huge unlock with LLMs, right? And so now they can hit an API and get this (laughs) whole new world opened up to them. And they're like, wow, this is incredible. All that stuff, like you were saying, like that stuff that I wanted to build for the last three years, I can do it now. This is great. And so that is one side where it's like PMs moving more towards understanding or trying to understand AI. Have you seen it where the ML teams or people that are doing MLs, data scientists, whoever, are trying to move towards product a bit more? It almost feels like potentially because now all of these PMs are basically playing in their playground. They're like, all right, whoa, 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 product guy. What's going on here? Like, I gotta, I guess I gotta understand your world a little bit more too. Yeah, yeah. This is one thing that I've actively noticed and I really respect in the people that I am working with. They are very product oriented. And this has been true long before Gen AI came in because for a different experience, for a non-machine learning experience, sometimes it could be as cut and dry as, hey, product and design worked on some design and we need this exact experience and let's let's build it. But with machine learning, it's always going to be, hey, this is the experience that I'm trying to generate. And then the machine learning engineer is the one who's actually coding the model. So they know where the biases could come up. They know how the experience could go wrong. And it's very difficult for someone uh, who is just a PM to know all of this or actively squash any of those issues before they come up. So I, the people that I worked with, they are very product oriented. They actively think about what's the problem that we're trying to solve? What could be the corner cases? Where are we potentially adding bias? How could we actively de-bias the system? So I think all a lot of successful machine learning engineers that I've worked with, they're very product oriented. And as a PM, I'm very thankful for it. Yeah, I bet. I want to ask you about the different gotchas that you found. Maybe you don't have to talk to us about this stuff at LinkedIn, wink, wink, but you can talk to us about things that you were saying how it feels good when you add a new feature or you bring this AI into your product until all of a sudden you start talking to customers and they're saying, this is absolute crap. And you mentioned how that trust factor is, it needs to be very, very boosted. And so what are some other gotchas that you've seen? The um, gotchas are also just things that I've been actively trying to be very particular about is thinking about what are you building the experience for? So the evaluation criteria, what makes this experience an actual success? And that's something that you will have to define like way earlier in the cycle and you have to be very strict in what the constraints are, what are you actually trying to put? Because when you're going to give a prompt or any input to any of the LLM models, they can create an output. Now, how do you say if this is good or bad? It's it's very difficult to sit and evaluate I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I would give this a 5 on 10, but what is a 5 on 10? And then when you want to scale the experience, you will have many people trying to score it. So, okay, now this person's 5 with that person's 10. So having that evaluation criteria is extremely critical so that you actually know what you're testing for and then you can reverse engineer your prompt to actually solve for that criteria. So that is something that I would say people should actively think about. And then having a cadence going on prompt engineering, seeing what kind of problems you can solve, what came up in the previous yeah. evaluation, how can you do it better this time? That's that. And the third piece is then trust. See, once you RAM, look at what kind of feedback you're getting, how what kind of patterns are now emerging. The models change, a lot of things change. People's interaction patterns change because a lot of times you're going to build an experience that people weren't used to in the old world. So you have to check your biases. This is actually a big one. You have to check your biases on how you thought the users will use the ecosystem or the new feature. 
Yeah. And maybe they have a completely different style of using your system. And then ChatGPT could give a third response that you hadn't even thought about. So that's something. To it's it comes about. right out of left field. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Before you knew it. Yeah. And I love this idea of like the evaluation, man. It's so hard. And this is why we put together that survey. And it feels like the consensus is just throwing a thumbs up or thumbs down on the response and letting the end user say if it was good or bad. But man, like the truth is that's not good enough. And that's not going to get you very far. And especially if you're trying to figure things out, like half the time when I get bad responses, I don't give a thumbs down. I just am like, ah, this sucks. I, I got to go figure out another way to do this. And so I, I know we've had um, a loan on here from Aporia and he was talking about how he looks at when he's monitoring the output, the thumbs up, thumbs down is pretty much like, it's not worthless, but it's next to worthless. And he looks at things like if you bounce after you get the <laughs> output, it's like, oh, that's a pretty clear signal that that output was not useful for you. But then there's like those false positives where it's like, oh, you just copy pasted and you bounced. And so it's super complicated to figure out like, was this valuable or not? I don't really know how to uh, figure that out and have a clear picture on it. And again, that's why we put out that evaluation survey and hopefully through the collective wisdom of all of us in the community, we will figure something out or we'll have some clear ways of doing it and some of these best practices and patterns will emerge but right now it's a jungle out there man yeah yeah it's a very exciting jungle so i I, before you mentioned the bounce that i was going to mention the bounce as well and i have my own thoughts on like what what signals one could potentially look for but again that would kind of vary from one product to another as well yeah so, dude, last question for you before we finish this one off. Who is more confident, a 14-year-old you Bollywood actor or ChatGPT? Oh, oh, I think I was definitely more humble than ChatGPT. If you go as ChatGPT, they be like, oh, yes, I am an actor. Like, no, you're just yeah. an actor. And then, oh, no, no, the output, like, I am an AI machine learning model. But anyway, yeah, I'd say I was yeah, the more humble one. <laughs> yeah, I was laughing because I, I made the joke at the beginning of the year and I said, my New Year's resolution is to be as confident as ChatGPT. And uh, that. yeah, and the year's not over yet, but, you know, still working on it. <laughs> still trying I to get there. That. I don't think I can. It's a pretty high bar that they've set. So I love that. I love that for you. <laughs> Dude, well, this has been great. I really appreciate you coming on here and talking to us about building products, especially with the generative AI. And so I'll let you go. That's it. We'll end it here. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me there. Cheers. Awesome.